So Trudy, thank you for helping me kick off this new series called Our Beloved Teachers. And I wanted to start that with one of my own beloved teachers. So thank you again for taking the time to speak about your beloved teachers. Looking forward to this. Thank you, Vince. I am too. I'm excited to be doing this with you and also just very grateful to you for having the vision for this project. As your beloved teachers grow older and my beloved teachers, many of them are gone, it feels really important to be doing this. So yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I'm really encouraged that you're interested in doing this. And I know you had three beloved teachers because you studied for such a long time in the Dharma and you studied with each of these teachers. I've heard you share this at least, it seemed like for a decade or more. So that's no small amount of time to be training with someone and getting to know them. And they're all Zen teachers, as I understand. Very interesting there. Yeah. And just to clarify today, I want to focus on my first teacher, Venerable Reverend Sung San, a Korean Zen master whom we called Sansanin in the early days. And then when he turned 60, it's a Korean honorific to put the prefix day, which means great, day Sansanin later years. Mm. So I'll probably refer to him interchangeably as Sansanim or De Sansanim. Okay, great. And clearly you were studying with him before he got the honorific. So your memory is oh, going to yeah. Oh, yeah. be connected was, to those times. Yeah, I was studying with him maybe just a year or two after he came to the United States very early on. When he first came, he didn't speak English. So he got a job repairing washing machines and dryers at a laundromat. And so he worked this very humble job and he had this little apartment in Providence, Rhode Island, where a professor from Brown found him, I don't remember how, and came to learn with him and then brought some of his students from Brown who were the very first people, people like my former husband, George Bowman, and others whom I knew. And then they acquired this old funeral home on Hope Street in Providence. And that's where I first began to practice with him. And I'll tell you how I met him was really interesting too, because I was seeking, I was really looking for some spiritual guidance. I had some experiences of openings early in my life that I had nowhere to put those experiences or understand them. And then, like many in my generation, we had experimented with psychedelics. And so we had experienced some sense of expanded awareness, but it was so transitory. I remember feeling like I'm tired of getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. There must be somebody who understands more about this. And you and I talked about some of this in that podcast, The Utter Perfection of Everything. So I was searching and then my childhood friend, he was then Johnny Cabot, now is Dr. John Cabot-Zinn. After he married Myla Zinn, he became Dr. John Cabot-Zinn. And his best friend, Larry Rosenberg, they found Sansanin. I'm not quite sure how, but they did. This was the really fortunate thing. He came to Cambridge to study English for the summer at Harvard Summer School. I can't remember if it was 1973 or 1974, but 
a friend of ours, Stephen Mitchell, the author, rented a big old house on Fairweather Street in Cambridge. And Sassini was giving a talk there and we went to the talk. And really, you have to understand, I had been seeking, I had been going to here visiting swamis, and I had been told to eat artichokes and do this mantra, and I didn't like being told what to do. And the mantra didn't appeal to me, and there were other experiences like that. So anyway, I went along with them, kind of tagging along. And he spoke heavily accented English, and talked about things like your mind be poor thinking, which meant before thinking. I couldn't really relate to that. I knew nothing about my mind before thinking exactly, exactly, or actually. And then he started saying things like, he would point to the floor with his Zen stick and say, the floor is brown. Then he would point to the wall and say, the wall is white. Then outside, the sky is blue, the grass is green. And for some reason, I started crying. These were not mysterious hidden truths. Any basically two-year-old can name those colors, probably. And yet, there was something about the way that he said it and the look in his eye. I felt like he knows what I know. And he said, everything is the truth. Everything you see, hear, taste, touch is the truth. And then he said, well, you hear that, but you don't know the truth because you don't know yourself. And that really rang true to me. And so then I began to practice with him and he was my first meditation teacher. His instruction was very simple. He talked about the don't know mind, which was also baffling at first. I didn't know what that meant. And he gave this famous instruction. This was our meditation instruction. In the beginning, he showed us how to sit cross-legged on the cushion and hold our hands in this mudra. He said, ask yourself, what am I? That's how he said it. Hmm. Then he gave us the answer. So that was our koan that we were to work with. You don't usually get the answer to a koan. You're supposed to come up with that through your own intuitive wisdom. So then he says, what am I? Don't know. It's just like that. Don't know. And of course, he was pointing us to the mystery of consciousness, the mystery of our being. And also that we needed to go through all those layers of identities the various identities we carry, white, cisgender, we didn't use that word in those days, but mother, daughter, sister, therapist, teacher, whatever our identities are, to just drop underneath all of those roles and identities and then ask, so now what am I? You could say, who am I? But there was something about his using the word what that made it even easier to detach from the identities. What is this? What is this body? What is this reality we find ourselves in? What is this? And so that was our meditation instruction that when the mind would go off into thinking, thinking to simply come back and pose that question and rest as much as possible in the not knowing. 
And it was a beautiful training because life is always uncertain. Today, we feel like it's so much more uncertain because of climate change and the global pandemic. But back then, we had nuclear arms race. We had Jonathan Schell writing The Fate of the Earth, if there was a nuclear holocaust. We had the energy crisis in the early 70s. We thought we had plenty of uncertainty and probably at every stage in human history, humans have felt this way, that there's so much uncertainty and so much we don't know. And so beginning to get comfortable with that not knowing and being able to bear not knowing and to rest in uncertainty feels like a great gift that he gave us with those instructions. And then he also had a whole curriculum of koan study. Mm -hmm. And I never made it very far through that curriculum. I don't know if I was one third of the way or where I was when I wound up with another teacher, but he was so patient. And I'm so grateful that I was there right at the beginning not because of being a woman or a pioneer or any of those identities, but because he was available to us. He was around. He used to sit with us. He used to chant with us. He taught us how to eat with our four bowls. The Korean version of Japanese oryoki has four bowls, and there was a ritual, a kind of ceremony of eating. <laughs> he ate really fast. I remember one breakfast at the Providence Zen Center where they served these really delicious thick whole wheat pancakes. And then we always wanted protein. So we put, I put a fair amount of peanut butter on them. That takes a while to chew. It's sticky. Right. I remember he had finished. He was starting washing his bowls, which was the sign for all of us to wash our bowls. And there was nowhere to put uneaten food. I remember almost choking to death. <laughs> swallow pancakes. And I'll tell you a memory from my very first retreat with him. He called his intensive Zen retreats, Yongmen Jonjins. Yongmen Jonjin in Korea means to leap like a tiger while sitting. So <laughs> this felt like a pretty unattainable ideal, but to be that alert, to be that dynamic and energized while you're sitting. But that's what he wanted us to aspire to. But I remember during this first retreat, I think it was the second morning, it was really hard for me to sit still. Again, he was very gracious and spacious around. I don't think I could have been a Zen student if I'd had to start out in a Japanese style Zendo. He mm -hmm. didn't mind if you switched positions. He didn't mind if you fidgeted. You could stand up if you were in too much pain. You could stand up behind your cushion. He was very relaxed as long as you were there and you practiced. So I'd been practicing all day and I woke up the next morning and I went into the bathroom. I looked in the mirror, brushed my teeth, and I don't know how long it was, maybe just a few seconds or a split second, I saw in the mirror this blackened face of a decaying corpse. I was completely freaked out and horrified. And then, of course, it disappeared. There was just the usual image of me. I couldn't wait to go talk to him. And when it was my turn, I told him, I saw this in the mirror. I was a corpse. To my great surprise, he laughed. And then he took his Zen stick and gently touched my thigh, like gently tapping my leg. 
were both sitting cross-legged face to face. And he looked me right in the eye and he said, your body already a corpse and burst out laughing. And for some reason, I found this mysteriously comforting that he could talk about our mortality and laugh about it because this mm. is the way it is. So I could go on and on with his teaching, but I want to give you a chance to ask me any questions that you might have so far. And then, yeah, I can continue. I was curious a little bit of the kind of logistics of day to day. So you were living in Cambridge at the time where he was teaching in, in the, okay, former uh, funeral yeah, home. the former funeral home was in Providence, Rhode Island. That was his base. Okay. In, he lived and worked in Providence and taught there. And everybody okay. lived at that former funeral home. And I think everybody thought it was very fitting that it should be yeah. a sort of renovated, not that it was that renovated, but a somewhat funeral home. Whereas in some traditions, that would have been seen as very inauspicious and there would have been superstition around that. But no, that was very much embraced. And I'll always mm. remember there was this really ugly, dark, muddy pink carpet with swirls on it that was left over from the funeral home days. We would practice zazen with our eyes lowered, not closed. And mm. oh boy, you get to know that carpet and all of the hallucinatory images that appear on that carpet. So that right. was his home base. Then Stephen Mitchell rented this house on Fairweather Street to start out with while Sansanim came to Cambridge, Massachusetts to the Harvard Summer School to study English. Okay. So he was in Cambridge for the summer and started the Cambridge Zen Center. Wherever he went, he started a Zen Center. I think okay. the next one was the New Haven Zen Center because he was invited by Yale students. But wherever he went, he started a Zen Center and it could be just a living room in somebody's home, but okay. it was whatever space was available. And then somehow... To us, it just seemed like he was manifesting, I forget the name, in India, for those Babas who can manifest things, just appear in their palms. It seemed to us he was magically manifesting Buddhas and the Korean drums that we used for chanting, which I'll go get mine and show it. And it's beautiful sound, a hollow drum. Nice. He would get us those things. And I think the Sangha in Korea, the communities in Korea, he was head of the Chogye order which is a monastic order in Korean Son or Zen. And somehow he was able to provide us with these supplies and then eventually with the gray robes that we wore over our clothes. Mm. And so that's how the Zen Center would get set up. And he mm. would appoint whoever was there to be the housemaster who would welcome people and make sure things were taken care of in the house or the head teacher who may have only been meditating for a year, but was available mm. for that. He would just put people into these roles and wow. people grew into them for the most part. Mm. Sometimes they didn't, but mostly they did. And it was very homemade and very organic and very trusting. He had mm -hmm. a lot of trust that people would grow into. And for me at that time, I was in my mid-20s, I think I was 26 when I met him for the first time, maybe just turned 26. I had a five-year-old daughter and I was already a divorced single mom. So it was a big challenge for me to carve out time to do this because I didn't have an ex-husband waiting in the wings or helping to support us. So I didn't have weekends off or help with childcare. And so I would trade time with other single moms. 
and there was a little girl who was Hillary's age, Ashley. Her mom was there living in the Cambridge Zen Center. And so sometimes I would bring Hillary, the girls would play quietly while we did our sitting. And then we'd have a sleepover and then I could get up very early in the morning. We were all young people and people talking about, wow, you get up at 4.15 and we do 108 prostrations first thing in the morning. And they were almost bragging about enduring <laughs> this tough practice. And I remember thinking, if you've ever been a single mom, that's not hard at all. <laughs> it didn't seem hard to me at all. I remember just kind of laughing. And yeah, for me, it was a blessing and a privilege. And it just wasn't that hard to do that practice. And I was working as a preschool teacher at a school for severely dysregulated children that I had helped to found. And mm. so my schedule matched my daughter's school vacations. And that's when I would trade time and do retreats. And then in the summer, mm. my parents would also take her for a good chunk of time. They were overseas. And they would take her about mm. three weeks so I could do more intensive practice. And that's what I did, Vince, with my vacation time. So you were a dedicated Zen student. Kind of all your off time was yeah, practicing that's what I, for the that's most part. What I, that's what I wanted to do. It's really what I wanted to do. Yeah. I was single. I wasn't in a relationship. And so my life was mothering and working and practicing. Of course, I had friends. But then increasingly, the friends became the friends who were also practicing. <laughs> together. So you had right. your community was yes. also yes. centered around the and also the, the school Zen center where I worked. It was a small school we had started together and again it was a very sort of organic starting out from scratch process. So we were very close to the teachers who taught at that school, one of whom also became a Zen student, Ellen Shapiro, and all of mm. whom started to meditate. I remember they all came to my ceremony when I took the precepts and then when Sansanim gave me the 10 precepts of becoming a Dharma teacher later on. They all came for that. So mm. yes, it was the meditation community and the school where I worked too, which still exists. It, mm. Today it's called the Therapeutic Day School. And now it goes all the way up to, I don't know, maybe even eighth grade, but certainly through elementary school. That's beautiful too. So that's the context for this beginning to practice. Okay. And Sansanim used to, he was very clear. He would give these simple teachings at first and he would say, you understand, but you don't really know what I'm talking about. And the reason you don't really know what I'm talking about is because you don't really know the difference between, and, and these were not his words, but this is what he was teaching. You don't know the difference between conceptual understanding and experiential understanding. He would give us always very practical, very concrete, very simple examples. I could write volumes on what honey and sugar taste like, but until you come to the Zen Center and you actually taste honey and you taste sugar, you don't really know. You may know a lot about them, but you don't really know how they taste. It strikes me that distinction at the time, like in the early 70s, that would have been a lot more foreign of a point to make than now. Where it seems like that kind of yes. has almost gotten integrated into our common pop psychology. So many of these teachings have been integrated. Look, the expression don't know mind, which he coined, right. has become 
a very widespread expression, especially in meditation circles. A lot of these things that were exciting and new at the time, yes, people know. But even though people know, they haven't always tasted. There's still that. That's a good point. They're still, it's still true, even if you <laughs> know about them at that level. Yeah. And it's point. true for a lot of the teachings still, too, especially when you get into the teachings about emptiness and form and emptiness. And again, conceptually, we can understand it. But in fact, <laughs> have we tasted that? Have we tasted that? Can we understand really what that means? The other thing I loved about his teaching is substance, truth, and action. He was always teaching we're all one, we're all made of the same substance, like cookie dough and cookies was the example he used. An example close to my heart, cookie dough and cookies. And he would talk about the truth, the truth of what we see here, taste, touch right in this moment. This is the truth. He would talk about the emotions too. Anger is truth. Sadness is truth. Joy is truth. Whatever it is that you're experiencing in the moment, this is the truth. And he says, if you can attain that truth, if you can really experience that truth, then you can start to help people who are suffering with their minds. He also talked about the correct function of things. And the great example that I'll give you two very simple beginning koans, okay? Mm. He would say, what is this? Holding up a cup. This mm. is my water glass. And he'd say, if you say it's a glass, Vince, I'm going to hit you 30 times. He never actually <laughs> hit us. If you say it's a glass, I'm going to say you're attached to name and form. And I'm mm. going to hit you 30 times. <laughs> if you say it's not a glass, I'm going to say you're attached to emptiness. Mm. And I'm going to hit you 30 times. So Vince, <laughs> what is it? What is Don't it? Know. Show me. <laughs> ah! <laughs> yes, that's the answer. I don't know if you all could see Vince, but here's what he did. <laughs> that's the answer. Now, this one's going to be easier for you, Vince. Now that you've passed that koan. <laughs> okay. So, what is this, Vince? If you say it's a bell... I'm going to hit you 30 times because you're attached to name and form. But if you say it's not a bell, I'm also going to hit you 30 times because you're attached to emptiness. Now, what is this? I'm glad I have the spell that I think you gave us. Do you actually ring the bell in the con? How does it work? <laughs> Yay! Well, I love can... Zen. So cool. Yeah. So... Everybody, Vince just passed those two koans with flying colors. <laughs> now I'm going to make him a Dharma teacher. <laughs> Except I already did. So. <laughs> you could always take it back if I didn't pass the two. So. <laughs> yeah, so he's teaching the Buddha's middle way. And he's teaching mm. it concretely, practically, mm. in mm. action, right? substance, truth, and function. This is the function of the teaching. And mm. I'm a working single mom. I like practical teaching. You could teach me about the middle way between eternalism and nihilism. You could teach me the philosophy. And yes, I would understand it intellectually. But this was a way to embody what the Buddha was teaching. And it was brilliant. He would do the same thing with sameness and difference. 
Okay, so let's pretend this is my Zen stick. I actually have a Zen stick. So this is a beautiful Zen stick. It's beautifully carved. It belonged to my teacher, Maureen Stewart Roshi. It's a lotus vine. And I never attained a Zen stick in Sansanim's lineage. What's the significance of that? It's a teaching stick. And this one was not given to me directly by Maureen, but after her death. In other words, I was not given any kind of formal teaching authorization from her. But that's another story. I'll tell all of that when we I, get there. But for the purposes of what can do it with the drum, this is called a moktak, and it's a carved Korean drum, a hollow mm. drum carved from one piece of wood, as you can see, very beautiful. It makes a beautiful sound. And this is the sound that we would hear. This is the sound that would call you to meditation. And this is the sound that would accompany chanting. It's almost like a musical drum. So I'm going to give you another koan. So <laughs> this drum, <laughs> these are beginning koans and I'm giving you uh, confidence here, Thank you. kids. Thank yeah. you. So, this drum, this sound, you hear it clearly, right? This is the beauty of it. He's now teaching Buddhist psychology and the fields mm. of consciousness, right? Mm. Of course, I don't know that at the time. So this sound, this drumstick, and your mind, are they the mm. same or different? Yes. If you say they're the same, this drumstick is going to hit you 30 times, Vince. Oh, no, not again. <laughs> the threats. And if you say they're different, <laughs> I'm going to pick up my drumstick and wrap you on the knuckles or the head or something, but I won't really do it. But I will hit you 30 times. Why do you get hit whether you say it's the same or different? Why? Where does that That's put nice. you? It puts you back into the mind that really doesn't know things like that only hears knows the true in the truest way so those are some of the ways that that he taught us and one of my favorite stories just of the simplicity of his teaching which i found to be also really profound and i wasn't the only one obviously at a Dharma talk once, somebody asked him a wonderful question because he would always teach us you should have great faith, great doubt, and a great mm -hmm. question. Those are the three qualities that you need for the practice. You need great faith. You have to really believe in yourself. And that's something he taught over and over again. He said, believe in yourself, but trust mm. yourself. Trust your perceptions. Believe that you're seeing clearly. Yes, you can tell the sky is blue or it's gray. And then the great doubt is the willingness to inquire. It's inquiry. It's the willingness to look deeply and not just to take things at their surface, face value. And mm. then having a great question the existential question of all humans, where do I come from? 
where will I go when I die? Why am I here? What is my life for? So those are the three qualities. I don't recall. He probably had given a Dharma talk about that. And then a woman raised her hand and said, so what is great faith? And he held up his little finger and he said to her, do you see this? And she said, yes. And he said, that is great faith. I loved him. He had a big, big beaming, wide smile, very cheerful, always very cheerful. He could get very mad, but he would always say it was just teaching anger. As for that, I don't know. <laughs> but he was just himself in such a glorious way that it gave you permission to be yourself and who you are. Mm -hmm. And he could be tender too. I remember one young Manjajan, when Zen retreat in Providence. It was in the summertime and it was really hot and muggy. I don't have to tell you about hot and muggy. You live in North Carolina and it's summer. And it was a work period because our days would be divided into sitting and walking meditation and work period and then meals. I remember I was cleaning out the kitchen cupboards and just sweating and feeling a little bit put upon, a little discouraged. You know, the mind, why am I doing this? What am I doing here? Or that kind of and I remember he walked past and he would be in his underwear. It was hot. He'd be in his baggy gray Korean monk pants and just a little undershirt. And I'll just remember, he put his hand on my back. He just patted me on the back. It was like, I'm sure I was drooping. I'm not implying that he necessarily was reading my mind, but he could be very tender and encouraging as mm. well as very strong. And I just loved the way he talked. He would say, even though I've finished my talk, I know that some of you are still not clear. I've given you a talk, but you're still not clear. And he'd say, your mind is the thing that carries around this body. But you don't understand what is my mind? What is my mind? And if you understood your mind, then everything I said to you would be crystal clear. And then he said, if we keep on practicing, finally, we enter this realm of enlightenment. Then everything we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, all is clear. Before our idea of self, our I was obstructing the truth. But if you take that away, then there's nothing preventing us from becoming one with the universe. So this was a frustrating thing for me as a 20-something, very wrapped up in my emotions and confusions in life and my attachments to people and things, and especially my own feelings. He was a man, number one, and a Korean monk, number two, from a different culture, an Asian culture, where the expression of emotions is treated differently. Although I will say in Korea, it's definitely more expressive and open than some other cultures in East Asia but not publicly so much. And he would say to us, we would bring our problems to him. Many problems, many things that we can look back on today, the way you might look back on your young son's problems and see they weren't really that big or serious. But at the time for him, for Xander, when he's having a problem, it's just as huge as when we're having a problem. It's the same thing. Right. So here I am having my huge 20-something problems and asking his advice. And he would often say, put it all down. Just put it all down. Man, from his perspective, I can see what he means completely today. Of mm. course, just put it down. That's all you need to do. 
It only exists mm. in your mind. Even if it's a real life situation, chances are it's not exactly the way you're perceiving it anyway. But when he would say that, I was a rebellious person, I would just rebel and think, no, this is important. I'm not going to put it down. So I would have been a much better Zen student <laughs> if I had known how to put it down. But in my defense, and I wasn't alone, of course, he didn't study psychology. He didn't mm. understand some of the things that I think Western psychology has really brought to and enriched the Dharma with, mm. understanding the emotions and understanding in a more nuanced way than just stop it, how to work with them. Because put it all down was really just stop it. And right. I don't know if you ever saw that classic Bob Newhart therapy video where he talks with a client. I mean, it's hysterical. And his whole method of therapy is to <laughs> yell, stop it at her when she begins <laughs> to talk about her problems. <laughs> Just stop it then. Oh, but my mother, no, no, we don't go there. So it was a little bit that kind of method that he was using. And as I said, I think that this is something that Western psychology has brought and enriched the Dharma with. And he also was very focused on and helped us on bodhisattva practice, he called it, which mm. is basically helping other people who are suffering. It was very clear, straight Zen. If you're hungry, eat. If someone else is hungry, feed them. Very simple and very profound. Did that take any particular like formal form? Did you all like students get together and go to the soup kitchen and feed people or did, was it more just like pointing to that as like how you live your life and when it arises it was pointing you to that as how it. you live your life really mm -hmm. very practically how you live your life and the zen center was a training place so the way it would be expressed in the zen center was by helping each other um, mm. and service to the center that needed things all the time but it was really about how we lived our lives and one thing I forgot to say when I was talking about those early meditation instructions, which is important, he would teach us with the koan, whether it was what am I or a later koan that you might be working on, which were called kungan in the Korean mm. tradition, that how you work with your kungan is like this. Let's say you lost your wallet somewhere in the house, mm. right? You just can't find it or your keys, whatever it is. You don't go from room to room saying, where's my wallet? 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 You just look for your wallet. Mm. So the kungan is not like a mantra. You just say it over and over. What am I? What am I? In this sort of rote way, you look, you inquire mm. deeply, what am I? Mm. And then the way that he taught for keeping that kungan in your awareness so that you weren't lost in thought all day long, like during the day when you're not meditating and you're going about your business, your work, your childcare, the other things you're doing. The example that he would give was of a Korean widow. So she's alone and she has a son who is her only child. And he joins the army. He has to join the army. And but this is her only son. She's always thinking about him. I want him to do well in his studies. I want him to have the right friends. I want him to get married and be happy. She's totally devoted to him. And then he has to go away. 
He has to join the army. And she's thinking about him all the time until he comes back. Every day he's in her heart. And that's your koan, to just keep it with you the way you would keep a loved one who's away and you're hoping mm. they'll get to come back. Again, very practical support how to do these things. And at the beginning, he also taught us, I remember we would just sit on the floor in the we didn't call it the zendo. That's a Japanese word. We called it the Dharma room. We would sit on the floor and he had this big white pad and he had a beautiful calligraphy. He would write these teachings in Korean. And then Becky Burnham, who's since passed away, she, she was the youngest student. I think I was 25 or 26. Becky was 19. And we used to commiserate us mid-20s. We'd say, oh, God, Becky's so lucky. She started to practice when she was young. Nice. Right. But Becky had this very beautiful way of printing her calligraphy. So she would translate the teachings. And at the beginning, he taught us Four Noble Truths, the Three Marks of Existence, sort of basic Buddhist teachings. But then later, all of that was encoded in the Kangans and his unique way of having these sort of Dharma sound bites fall down a hundred times, get up 101 times, or just keep your try mind, only try. He had a lot of these phrases. But he also talked about how Buddhism was very practical and very consistent in its teaching. Here again, he would say it's very consistent in its teaching, its practical application, and its function, how it works. Here are some of his words. He says, almost all religions have some kind of opposites thinking. For example, I must call upon God for help. I must pray to God, or I must reach somehow a God outside of myself. But Buddhism teaches that if you practice and attain your true self, then you become Buddha. In the Christian Bible, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But most people don't understand the meaning behind this. What is the meaning of the way? What means to return to the truth? What does that mean? And then he goes on with his teaching. Everything you see, hear, taste, touch is already the truth. What is not the truth? The sky is blue. The tree is green. The dog is barking. The sugar is sweet. Even though we live this truth all the time, we don't know truth. Because we don't know ourselves. Again, coming back always to what he called the primary point. What is the meaning of life? And it was beautiful. He said, this life means helping all beings. Mm -hmm. And he devoted his whole life to that, for better, for worse. He made mistakes. He was a human being. For example, in the early years, he was having an affair. This was very early on with just a few students. He was having an affair with one of them. And everybody knew about it. He just loved her, you know. <laughs> And what I've discovered later is that at a certain point, it's okay, I guess, for a monk to have a special friend. I don't know, maybe it's tolerated in certain circles in Korea. It is, or it was, but we didn't know those things. And then later, many years later, that student actually wound up getting married and so forth, having a daughter. But later, there was another person who like the first one, also became a teacher, had a relationship with him. These were relationships. And yet he was encouraging some people to become monastics and that they should be celibate. 
when they found out that he hadn't always been, they felt betrayed, totally betrayed. And you can imagine if you're struggling to be celibate and then you find out your teacher who told you to be an axe like a monk isn't, right? They got very upset. And so it created this kind of scandal at the time. But here's the thing. Sansanin did something that I've never heard of another teacher, especially an Asian man, a Korean man, or doing when people got very upset was, of course, disruptive for the community. And he went to all of his Zen centers and he convened everybody who wanted to be there. He prostrated himself, did a full prostration, bowed, repented, apologized, and listened to them, sat in wow. the center of that circle and listened. I know of a female teacher, Agyoku Roshi, at the Zen Center of Los Angeles. She did not engage in any kind of misconduct herself, but her teacher, Maizumi Roshi, did. And how she brought people back into trust of the Zen Center was just spending hours and hours listening and listening. Now, I don't think Sansin spent hours and hours in each place listening, but the fact that he was willing to humble himself and offer a bow, it made a huge difference. It really did. And I mention this because I know that sometimes you can hear the name of a teacher and associate that teacher with the scandal that they got into or something like that. Right. It's right. just much more nuanced and interesting than that. And I'm not saying it's okay that he slept with people who were also his students. I don't condone that. But in the early 70s, things were very different from the way they were later on when the Zen centers became more populated and there was a need for more boundaries and organization and so forth. Yeah. So this life means helping all beings. If they're hungry, give them food, right? If they're thirsty, give them water, something to drink. When you meet somebody's suffering, you just help them. And this was really inculcated in us that we need to understand who we are, that we need to understand our own minds. We need to wake up so that we can really help other people. You've brought up so many things now that I want to circle back around to. One, this is more of just a practical training thing, but what was the chanting like? Did you oh, all yeah. chant in Korean? <laughs> chanting. I'm laughing because, oh, that became... <laughs> it started out with these chants that they were all in Korean or transliterated from Sanskrit. Some of the Duranis were transliterated from Sanskrit into a Korean transliteration or in Korean. And it started out that there was a half an hour of chanting. And I can still remember the chants. You hear the moktak. They were melodic, which I really liked because in the Japanese zendos, they're not melodic. They had tunes. There was a beautiful chant to the Bodhisattva, Huanseon Bosal in Korean. Huan Yin in China, Kanzion in Japan, or Kanan. Beautiful chant. I still chant that one sometimes. And they had tunes. But then it expanded, and there was a morning bell chant that went on and on. Beautiful chants. And he had a beautiful chanting voice. But if you're working and you're raising kids and you're an hour of chanting in the morning and then sitting after you've done 108 prostrations, the practice time got very extended. 
And that was also how he taught us at the beginning. At the very beginning, we ate on plates. And then he introduced the four bowls practice when he felt people were ready. I'm sure there are some people who really love the chanting. The chanting, though, is a way for people to understand oneness, chanting Mm -hmm. together. And chanting together, there are moments when you lose yourself. And I remember one moment when everything just popped into sort of oneness. And afterwards, he came up to me and gave me that pat on the shoulder and said, hmm, chanting, huh? (laughs) I don't know how he knew, but I guess if you pop into that space, he's there, you know? And I did Mm. live in the Zen Center for a period of maybe five months at one point when my daughter Mm. was a bit bigger. I wanted to, and it was great. I loved it, being able to practice that much with everybody. But it was aggravating too, to live with people who aren't your chosen people to live with. And he talked about it as boiling potatoes. And as the potatoes boil, they rub up against each other and they get peeled. It's not a pleasant process, but you would get peeled. And I moved out because it really wasn't that great for my daughter. She felt a little embarrassed when she had friends over. It was a weird place. And Mm. also she liked a certain little sliced turkey in a packet in her lunch, in a sandwich. And it was a vegetarian household. Mm. And people would be upset that the turkey was in the fridge for her lunch and the turkey would disappear. (laughs) People would eat it. (laughs) Anyway, there were just things like that. Yeah. You're balancing these two very different traditions, like the single parent, single mother on the one hand, and you're completely responsible for your child's life. And then on the other hand, like a serious committed practitioner in a monastic tradition. Yeah. It very much sounds like Sansanim was a lot more flexible than some of the stories I hear about some Zen and Chan San teachers who come very over. Flexible, like yes. oh, we're going to transition you to the four bowls instead of like yeah. right off the bat. You just got to jump right into this completely culturally different environment and just get with the program, sink or swim, kind of thing. That strikes me as being a lot different than a lot of the things I've heard about other trainings and teachers at that time. Yeah, he had a lot of wisdom that way. He really did. And what was interesting is that, I don't know if it was a couple of years into it, again, John and Larry discovered, they said there are these people, they sit for a whole hour, they don't move. Anyway, it turned out to be the Vipassana people because Jack and Joseph and Sharon had started teaching. And I remember talking to Sansanim about it because I wanted to go to a Vipassana retreat. I had two weeks that my parents were in the States, I had childcare, and I had the time off work. And he, again, he was very spacious. He was like, sure, you can go, he said, but you're going to see, you'll be more worse when you come back. And And I went, it was before they had Barry. It was a camp in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I went, John Kabat-Zinn was there, Larry Rosenberg, Ramdas was there. There were all these people who later became luminaries were at this retreat. Yeah. And it was great. I got so concentrated because Sansanim wasn't focusing on Samadhi and building Samadhi. Mm-hmm. He was up to something a little bit different. Anyway, I got so, so mm-hmm. concentrated. But then I discovered he was right because when I came mm-hmm. back, everything was mm-hmm. an impingement on my samadhi. Even my daughter right. was so hypersensitive. And mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, I'm worser. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it made me really appreciate Zen. But I also yes. continued practicing Vipassana. And honestly, people often ask me, which it was just 
depending on when I had childcare and when there was a retreat. So I did mm. keep practicing with them. And I also, I loved that practice too. Mm. And that became a theme in my life, just really loving the Dharma in all its traditions and all its mm. manifestations. Um, I want to go back to what you're saying about the the scandal, because that's such a common theme as well during that time period. I mean, especially it seems like in the Zen traditions, like I remember talking to Mark Oppenheimer about that book he wrote several years ago, The Zen Predator of the Upper East Side about Edo Shimano Roshi. And it seems like there's like legitimate differences between someone who, like Edo Shimano, from what I can tell and what I've heard, who's almost is like predatory in their behavior toward women. And then these other circumstances, which where there's a lot, like you're describing, there's cross-cultural differences that make it hard to understand what's expected or what's understood to be okay or not okay that doesn't get make it in the translation. And then there's just the difference of the historical cultural time period. You know, we're in the post-Me Too period now where we're, I think, culturally very attuned and sensitive to the power differentials. As you said, Western psychology and the boundaries that got integrated, you were a big part of that movement to bring those two together. This was all before that. So I think it's easy to forget yeah. in some ways that, that we learned the hard way. And I say we, meaning you, <laughs> you all. Yeah. I want to also say therapists knew about the boundaries and these power differentials for a long, long time. And mm. we were trained in that. I mean, I was a meditator before I became a therapist, but then I got trained in all of that. And I think I can't remember his name was Rudder wrote a book called Sex in the Forbidden Zone long, long time ago about mm. clergy in general who would get seduced or fall into that kind of behavior and didn't understand that a student's transference is just that. They mm. may seem to be in love with you. They think they're in love with you. They mm. have a crush on you for sure. They're idealizing you. We learned about this as psychotherapy, particularly if you're a middle-aged man, maybe feeling your powers in certain areas starting to wane, you know, to have a younger woman be essentially fawning over you and your marriage, you've been married for decades. Your wife isn't thinking that every single thing you say is brilliant anymore. She's not getting tears in her eyes when you say certain things <laughs> because it's so moving and brilliant. You can imagine. It's very seductive. I mean, I experienced it myself. I remember I was teaching a Zen retreat. It was a week-long retreat. And there was a man who was just very devoted. He had a very devotional bhakti nature. And he was cute too, younger man, not that much younger, right? And he came in for his one-on-one -on -one meeting with me and he did a bow and then and I was barefoot, practicing barefoot. And then he kissed my toes. And I remember I got this just beautiful shiver all through my body, this handsome man. And it was ticklish, right? And it was sexy. And I thought, mm. oh, this is how it happens. Mm. If I were lonely, if I were vulnerable, if I didn't understand about the boundaries and the transference and these kinds of things, right. this is how it happens. But that was many years later. What I want to say, and I feel the same way about the Me Too movement, while all of this awareness is key, it's got to be, because most of the predatory behaviors come from men, not all, but most, and mostly, not all, but most toward women. And I don't want to start going into examples and so forth. I just want to say that 
in our zeal to stop this kind of abuse, sexual abuse and misconduct of various kinds, there is often a lack of nuanced thinking. Let's just look at some famous examples. There is a difference between Al Frankel, who is a comedian who once put a hand jokingly on a woman's breast laughing photo. Okay, he's out of the Senate. And Harvey Weinstein, who was a predatory mm -hmm. creep. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? So totally. to me, there's a difference between teachers like Edo Shimani Roshi. To me, there's a question of, is there a pattern where this repeats over and over again? Is it a one-time slip that happened? It's still not okay, but that's different. It's different. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how that person handles the slip, like you said, they're, exactly. that's, that's a really actually pretty important and uncommon for someone to, it's huge to, to apologize. How the person handles it, whether there's mm. deception or continued deception, whether there's honesty and remorse. Sansanim was genuinely chastened and contrite and apologetic and open about it. Whether things are secret or open is not the only criteria, but it's a big topic. And I just want to make a plea for a nuanced, a more nuanced understanding of it. People love to gossip. It's human nature and love to shriek scandal. And then there's another point too, which I think has to do with the middle way in Buddhism and the way that Sansanim taught. Can you hold in your mind that somebody I think of mm. Sasaki Roshi here, that somebody could mm -hmm. be a powerful, profound, beneficial teacher and somebody who engaged in regular sexual misconduct. Does right. that mean all their teachings should be wiped out from all the archives of Lion's Roar, my beloved teachers, all the places where we're recording? How do we hold all of these things. And I remember Sansanim looking right at me once during a Dharma talk and saying, don't make opposites. Don't make a line. Don't make good and bad and right and wrong. Don't make opposites. Because I had a pretty judgmental mind at the time. And I did feel he was speaking directly to me, but of course he was talking to everybody. And so I think for all of us to try not to make opposites, but to hold a more nuanced view, it, it takes some maturity to do that. And you can't do that mm. if you've experienced teacher misconduct yourself. You have to heal from the part of that. That can be very traumatic. It certainly was for me in my mm. life. And you have to heal from that before you can have a more balanced view of things. Yeah, thank you. No, I just... It is such an important topic, and I have a feeling it's going to be a recurrent theme in this series because it's just part of the history. I don't want to shy away from that. It's more like what you're saying, how to not make opposites or hold the both-and-ness of it. It's like both things can be true. Two things are certainly be true at the same time. And I see that in all the teachers that I've gotten to know that I've like really spent time with where it's been so cool actually to see that. It's not it is disappointing initially, but then it's actually liberating to be like, oh, you're a profound yogi and you have issues with alcohol or you're, you're like this amazingly kind person and you get pissed and kick the dog or something like <laughs> human. You have flaws. 
Yeah. We're all yeah. human. Yeah. Yeah. The bar, the bar lowers a little. <laughs> when it's... What's what Wavy Gravy used to say? We're all bozos on this bus. <laughs> wavy Gravy. I'm glad Wavy Gravy got quoted. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, he's got so many good quotes. I've never heard that one. That's great. I think that was bozos. Jim. He also said the one you've probably heard me quote is really my favorite. If you don't have a sense of humor, it's not very funny. <laughs> that one I've heard. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to maybe just ask about like the community and your experience as, as Sunsanim got more popular, because I know eventually the quantum Zen school was founded and I know he became like an extremely popular teacher. And you said you were able really, you're in on the ground floor. And so you were able to really have a, a real human relationship, but how did that change as you were studying in the community? Did it change or did that happen more after? It happened gradually. What I remember vividly is that he used to be with us practicing all the time. And then he wouldn't be. And I remember feeling bereft. You know, it was like your daddy just walked out on you or something. I mean, he'd be in his room making phone calls in Korean, probably ordering the Buddhas and the mats and stuff. Who knows? <laughs> right. He'd be doing other things. And I remember just feeling just mildly abandoned as he became less available. Or then he would be at the New Haven Zen Center or he would be teaching a retreat. He started the Empty Gate Zen Center in Berkeley and the, it was called Talmasa, which still exists, a Korean Sangha that he had in Southern California. And then the Dharma Zen Center in LA. And so he would be, even before he had centers all over the world. And he could do that too, because there were more senior students now who were really grounded in the practice and could lead the practice. He still would be the one who would teach the retreats. And one of the things that he required of you once you've been practicing for a while, and not a long while either, is that you give Dharma talks. Oh my mm. God, excruciating. And he just wanted you to share your practice and what you were learning with your friends, essentially, or people who would come. And Yet being young, being unbelievably anxious about mm. public speaking and being a shy person anyway at that time, pretty shy. Oh, that would just, I would be sick all day, literally to my stomach. Oh, because he would sit right next to you. That would be, so you had to do it in front of him. Mm. And it was only 20 minutes. When I think mm. back, it was fine. And then he would do the questions and answers with people. But then as he made people teachers and then they could give the talks and he didn't have to always be there. He couldn't always be there because he was establishing this international network of centers. I really wasn't part of all of that, but I came back later because I was married to George Bowman, who was, he and Bobby Rhodes were his two original Dharma heirs who received this full Inca ceremony, this full transmission ceremony. There was a big chorus that came from Korea. These elderly Korean Zen masters were brought over. It was a huge shindig. And when I was married to George, he was also practicing with Sasaki Roshi. And again, Sansanim was very spacious and generous about that. But we went on a pilgrimage to the ancient Zen temples in Korea with him in 1987. And so I traveled with him. And I remember he wasn't pleased 
that we got married, I think he always wished George would have been a monk. And I remember mm. at first he would just give me these side glances and he wasn't loving the way he used to be. But I loved Korea and really got into that trip. I was very effusive with him about how much I loved Korea. We met these amazing practitioners and calligraphers of the temples and it was a wonderful trip and it was hard too. I mean, sometimes we'd arrive someplace, there was nowhere to sleep. We'd lie on the cement floor behind the Buddha or something. And I remember one place gave us, they had carpet remnants for blankets. Some places were nice, but some places were really tough, but I loved it. And he saw that. And at the end of that trip, he said to me, now you must teach with Georgie. He called him Georgie. Mm. And that was also a great blessing. But I wasn't around the Zen Center that much. I just was practicing with different people at that point. So mm. I can't fully answer your question about what it was like. Yeah. As he got busier, it almost sounds like you also at the time were branching out, almost went together, yes. which makes sense. Yes. Yeah. And is there a certain time that you'd say like you were no longer studying with him closely, like a certain point that you could identify? You know, I think by 1978 or so, I after about five years, I wasn't studying with him intensively. And that happened because I met Kobenchino, who never called himself Roshi, but now is Kobenchino Otagawa Roshi Otagawa, is I think his family name. And I met Koben and practiced with both for a while. And then looking back, Vince, I didn't have to leave Sansanim. I didn't have to turn in my Dharma teacher robes formally, but I did it, I think, because I wasn't really coming to the ceremonies. I wasn't really participating and giving of myself to the community. And I always felt close to him, but I did formally end that by returning the robes. And yeah, I feel a little sad when I think about it now. When he was in Korea ill and before he died, I wanted to see him and just thank mm. him. Because the more I practiced Vince, the more I understood his teachings. There were things right. he said that didn't, I heard them, but like he said, but you don't really know. And as I began to really know later on what he was teaching and have flashes of just such immense appreciation, I wanted to go back and tell him. But mm. he was pretty ill and people who had been with him said, Remember him the way he was. It's better. But I think I would like to, if you don't have another question now, Vince, I'd like to Please. close with a poem that Satsumi. Great. He said, a famous Zen poem says, coming empty-handed, going empty-handed, this is human. And then his poem, which I really love, is this. When you are born, where do you come from? When you die, where do you go? Life is like a floating cloud, which appears. Death is like a floating cloud, which disappears. The floating cloud originally does not exist. Life and death coming and going are also like this. But there is one thing which always remains clear. It's pure and clear not depending on life and death, then what is that one pure and clear thing that pulls this body around? 
And in the Dharma room at Hope Street, the renovated funeral home, repurposed, I should say, funeral home, he made a calligraphy. He had beautiful and fabulous, bold calligraphies. And then at the bottom, he translated, what is the one pure and clear thing? And as we would do walking meditation in a circle, round and round, always I would pass that calligraphy and that question. It really became a koan for me, a beautiful koan. It was a more beautiful koan than the other ones I was supposed to be focusing on. What is that one pure and clear thing? And it really opened out into this just beautiful, profound, vast awareness. These are some memories and teachings of my first beloved teacher, Reverend Sung San de Sansanim. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.